Before we start this episode, I want to mention that it does contain a very frank discussion of suicide as plot device, and to warn anyone who might be triggered or upset by this topic to proceed with caution. If you are struggling with depression or suicidal ideation, I encourage you to reach out to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. You can find them online at suicidepreventionlifeline.org or call them at 1-800-273-8255. Hello, and welcome to The Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever made, uh, no, not every movie ever made. <laughs> Eventually, we will be 837 <laughs> years old when we end this podcast. <clears throat> the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture, in order from the very first award ceremony to someday the present year. This week, we watched Five Star Final, which was nominated for the 1931-1932 awards. I am one of your hosts, Susan Araslin. I am your other host. I'm David Daw. So, David, this is a movie not set in World War One. This is a movie not set in World War One. This is a movie that isn't a gangster movie. But it is. It is about a newspaper, which thus far we've had a pretty bad record with movies about newspapers. And this is a weird one for me because this is a movie that I think, on an objective level, is pretty good but that I really disliked, that I have a, a real, like, incredibly specific pet peeve, that we should we should talk about the plot of this movie because I don't want to jump right into my pet peeve because it's kind of huge spoilers for the film. But I just personally didn't have a particularly great time with this movie, but I don't really have a lot of criticisms to level against it the way I do some of these films of just, like, this is totally inept and I have no understanding of why anyone would watch this film or nominate it for awards. Okay, but all of this whole podcast is just is just spoilers. I that's fair. <laughs> the movie is uh, about why tabloid journalism is bad, and I support tabloid journalism being bad. And it is about a tabloid journalist editor who's being predator uh, predatored. He's being predatored by his publisher into setting traps in the South Af South American jungles. <laughs> no, he's being pressured by his publisher to increase circulation. Uh, and so he does an investigative report into a woman who murdered, who was, a, she was a prostitute 20 years ago, right? I think that that's implied. No, I think she was a, the secretary to the guy that she killed and they were having an affair. God, so bloodless. And he knocked her up and then refused to marry her. So she killed him. There was something about like, I don't know. I guess it was just that the old lady yelled prostitute at her at some point. And I was like, oh, was she? There's just a weird patrician, old, horrible woman in this film. <laughs> but the point is, it's now been 20 years since she shot that guy. She was innocent by reason of the jury didn't want to send her to jail because the guy should have married her, which is also super weird. And she now has a new husband, a very nice life with the, with the daughter from the guy who knocked her up. And that daughter is about to get married to a very nice young man who has just a horrible mother. And like the first thing you learn about the mother is like, she cares about the society pages more than she cares about anything else. And so then this newspaper goes to kind of great lengths 
to dig up dirt on this woman who was found innocent 20 years ago. And uh, that sort of gossip leads to the mother of the fiancé insisting that the marriage be called off. The mother who shot the guy then attempts to call the newspaper several times, desperately trying to get them to not publish the story. They've already published the story, and so she suddenly kills herself, which is kind of set up enough in the plot that it's like, oh, wow, okay. But then the husband comes home, finds her body, and is instantly like, well, guess it's time to off myself, too. You missed something pretty critical, though. Okay. It's not only that she kills herself and then the dad slash stepdad really kills himself. Yes. It's that they do this on the day of his of their daughter's wedding. Yes. This is, spoilers for the rest of this podcast, exactly what fucking infuriates me about this movie. Then the rest of the movie is basically that, like, the editor who, like, it's been hinted has, like, moral qualms about being a tabloid editor, not tabloid, yellow, whatever, starts to truly regret what he's done when he learns that he's killed this woman, which, by the way, he did not kill this woman. Of the many, many things he does that are totally wrong, her suddenly killing herself is not his moral response. Anyway. No, and I actually, I'm going to stop you on the plot thing here because I felt like this movie was, it was the first movie that we've watched that I felt like was solidly mediocre. I'm going to go ahead and say like, it, it gets a five for me, be, not because I, yeah part of it is horrible and part of it is great. So the average is five, which is what all of my other fives have been. It tells a story that is a, sensible followable if incredibly predictable and sometimes unearned story but it was totally infuriating to me that the response that this woman and her husband have to the story being published is to kill themselves on their daughter's fucking wedding day this is my incredibly specific pet peeve it's not even suicide stories it's suicide stories where you'd have to be a crazy person to think the plot would work out for you the way that it does, which is a maddeningly common trope, weirdly. Like, these suicide stories that, like, it's not even just that it glorifies suicide, which does bother me, but it's that it glorifies suicide in this way that, like, clearly the writer has never been depressed in their entire life because suicide is treated as a problem-solving strategy and one that like you can really get pretty generous with like what the plan was here like with the mom you can make an argument that like she'd gone hysterical in the like medical science use of the word like she didn't know what to do she had lost her mind she makes this hysterical decision the dad is just like well don't have a wife anymore time to off myself on my daughter's wedding day and it's fucking maddening because the only justification for that is so that the daughter can then go and give a big speech about how shitty tabloid journalism is at the end of the movie it doesn't make any sense from a character perspective. Right. The previous record holder for driving me insane with this is there is an episode of Doctor Who called The Waters of Mars where you learn that a character's like tragic death by some weird sci-fi bullshit monster leads <laughs> to humanity going out into space. Like, the mystery of what happened to them is why humanity decides to go to the stars. And then the doctor decides to save this woman because he's on a power trip at that point in the series. 
And then she gets taken back to Earth after being saved from the thing that was supposed to kill her. And the doctor gives this speech about just like, I'm God now. And she's like, that's fucked up. And he's like, yeah, but there's nothing you can do about it. And then she shoots herself in the head, which is one, a completely different way to die. Two, on a completely different fucking planet from the one where she was supposed to die. (laughs) And then history's like, eh, good enough. And then does exactly what it did the first time. And, like, you would have to be a fucking madman to think that just killing yourself would have the solution that would lead to the solution you wanted it to lead to. Right. In that scenario. And I feel the same way about the suicides in this movie, where, like, it is clearly treated as a, like, semi-rational decision, as a decision they have come to and decided to do. But there's no rationale for their supposedly rational decision. They just fucking end their life on the fucking flimsiest of rationales. And it really derailed the entire movie for me. The mom part, I'll give it to them, but the dad for me was really... What really drove me over the edge about it was not only is it on his daughter's wedding day, but the daughter and her husband come home. They've been to City Hall. They are legally married. And she's like, great, Dad. So uh, are you coming to the church? And And he doesn't tell her, oh, your mom is dead in the bathroom. Makes up some bullshit instead about how she's at the store and he'll uh, he'll be right behind them to the church. He just has to run over and peg because she forgot her purse. The other thing that drives me fucking insane about this is that then they're driven into this corner because they believe that like their daughter's life is going to be entirely ruined by this newspaper story. But then it turns out the daughter's life would be fucking fine. Because even after both of them kill themselves, this horrible puritanical fucking monster woman that is the fiancé's mom is like, mm, guess we're going to have to postpone this marriage indefinitely because of the scandal of both your parents killing themselves. And the fiancé, to his great credit, is like, you're a monster. <laughs> but... On the other hand, that means, boy, if they just waited it out 12 whole goddamn hours, (laughs) literally all of their problems would have been solved. Yep. Uh, The other other thing, like, there's a lot in this movie I want to stress. Even though this sort of speech at the end that the daughter gives about why tabloid journalism is awful is unearned, it's still a really good speech and a pretty good burn on, like, honestly, a lot of actual journalism in the world today in the year of our Lord 2018. <laughs> and, like, there's good stuff in here. It's just, like, so preachy and so artificially set up in order to be preachy. There's so many, like, weird things in that. Like, it is super weird to me that it is repeatedly set up in this movie that if they just did, like, lifestyle stories about, like, they've opened a new chocolate shop on Geary. That's what journalism is for. And you're like, um, no. That absolutely, no. That, that is no better. What are you talking about? I mean, it's better in the sense that no one commits suicide over it. it. I, that's fair. But the other weirdness is how much this movie wants the editor to have, like, earned some kind of redemption or salvation. And I'm like, no, you were a fucking asshole who had this job for, like, 15 years. As a man of conscience, he's so, like, 
milk toast and terrible and boring and like I have no interest in his redemption and don't feel that he's earned it in any way just by yelling at his boss a lot because like he's been party to this thing and there's a specific part where he's like maybe I did some things to get my paycheck that I'm not proud of but you signed those checks and I'm like dude don't try and make this a class thing that doesn't help you fucking at all. You're still a garbage person that fucking hounded this family to death in the, like, logic of this film. You don't get to go, like, the real enemy is capitalism after fucking doing that. <laughs> so in addition to him having this uh, unearned redemption moment, his secretary supposedly has been in love with him forever, but won't do anything about it because she is disappointed in his judgment for participating in this life-destroying tabloid journalism but as soon as he's like i quit she runs after him and i really feel bad saying this because i think that who is the actress aline mcmahon and edward g robinson who plays the the editor yeah are giving really really great performances but most of what they are doing is not in the script. So I feel like they had a lot of conversations with the director where he was like, yeah, you know, he's you, you guys have been in love for however many years, which we'll make lots of references to, but you'll never actually do anything in the movie where that's clear that you have that kind of relationship. Yeah. Uh. Also, can I go back to just a one weird specific moment that's just stuck in my brain because I totally agree with you about like how weird it is. The first time they bring that up, the like squirrely eyed guy with the completely unnecessary subplot about a taxi race is just says apropos of nothing like, ah, oh, gosh, you're in love with the boss. And you're like, is she? Is that a thing now? <laughs> but to go back to the suicide plot, there is a part where the daughter preps to go to the newspaper office and she goes to get a gun but she specifically walks through the bathroom to do it, where both of her parents died. And I was like, oh my god, is she going to kill herself too? <laughs> yeah, I, th I thought that too. And I was frankly relieved that she picked up a gun and put it in her purse instead of putting it to her head. I was frankly kind of disappointed she didn't end up killing anybody. There was enough buildup that I was getting into the circularity of it. That in, like, constantly hounding this woman for a crime of passion 20 years ago, they cause a new crime of passion. And, like, they are complicit in the cycle of violence. But instead, she has to be, like... It's so toothless about how good all of the people who aren't in the newspaper are. How uncomplicatedly good people they are. So, like, she has to be stopped... She also, like, pulls the gun out and almost fires before her husband comes in and just puts the gun up in the air. And then everyone's like, okay, fine, that wasn't attempted murder, and just lets her leave, which is bonkers. <laughs> There's so much in this movie that doesn't make any sense except in service to, again, this thing that's complicated for me because it's, like, a moral I agree with. Like, I agree that this type of journalism is bad. <laughs> And that the people who practice it are bad, but so much of the logic of how everyone behaves in this movie is, like, dependent on getting to that moral in a way that I just want to watch the fucking five-minute end of G.I. Joe special version of this <laughs> and not the, a full goddamn movie of it. 
because when I know what the moral is supposed to be three minutes into the film, it's not satisfying to wait an hour and a half to get to the long monologues about the moral, especially when people behave like fucking bonkers crazy people all the time to get us to that moral. I will say that I guess if we had to have all of that set up to have the scene in the newspaper office with the daughter and her husband, then fine, it was worth it because that scene is great and she does give a great speech. Mm -hmm. And also her husband is the surprise MVP of this movie. Because he totally bitches out his terrible mother. Yeah. He's super handsome and has the most beautiful transatlantic accent I have ever heard. My favorite thing about the husband, I will let you finish, but I have a favorite thing about the husband, but go ahead. I mean, that was really it. I wanted the movie about him and his terrible childhood with his awful parents that finally drove (laughs) him to be like, you're a bunch of class snobs and fuck you. Like, that's the movie I wanted to watch. My favorite thing about him is in the long scene at the end where everybody gets a monologue about their point of view. When he comes in and stops his wife from shooting all of them, he then gives his long speech about, like, you're all sitting here on your fucking ivory tower and you think you get to judge people, but I get to judge people and I judge you all suck. And we're not going (laughs) to do anything to you. Like, he, he repeatedly stresses in his monologue, like, We're not going to touch you. We can't touch you. You're beyond our reach, you pathetic, rich assholes. And then, like, is literally, like, almost shuts the door and then comes back and completely countermanding everything he just said goes, by the way, if you ever write a story about my wife, I will hunt you down and kill all of you. And then shuts the door. (laughs) And it's amazing. (laughs) Because of all of the things in this movie that make no sense, him going like, I'm not going to try and do anything to you. There's nothing I can do to you. Only your conscience can do anything to you. And then going, by the way, I will fucking hunt you down like dogs and murder every single one of you. Afterward is the most like, yeah, that seems right. That seems like a thing an actual person would do. That was a pretty intense thing to say. But I also felt like that was another reason that I... (laughs) found him endearing is he was like you know oh absolutely we're not gonna do anything to you now but also i'm protecting my wife because i'm not gonna end up finding her in the bathroom with a bullet in her head he is saying two contradictory things but as a character choice having him say two contradictory things makes perfect sense unlike a lot of the times that that happens in this movie right and it really did just endear me to him more it's just like yeah, this guy's had a rough fucking day, too. Yeah, that, that's true. Like, he didn't lose his parents to suicide, but he did basically disown them. And his wife's parents committed suicide on his wedding day. Yeah, that's pretty rough. That's pretty rough. I want to talk about the acting in this movie. Okay. Because it was, in certain cases, well, actually, I think across the board, it was some of the most remarkable acting that we've seen, but not always because it was good. Edward G. Robinson, I've already said, I thought was great. I really think that he did a great job as the editor. And there's some echoes of this character in Network. Like the end of Five Star Final where he tells everybody like, I'm not going to do this anymore. I quit. I'm not going to have any more blood on my hands or whatever is totally the beginning of Network. Yeah. And I also just have a soft spot because I love Richard Burton so much for the well-educated guy who looks like a street thug. 
Because this guy totally looks like someone who would get in a fist fight in an Irish pub. But he's apparently well-educated, which is why Miss Taylor, his secretary, is all, you know, you could be writing stuff to win Pulitzers instead of this garbage. But Nancy Voorhees, who's the woman who had the scandal, and her husband, Michael Townsend, those two were the least interesting performers I think I've seen in a movie in a long time. They were so wooden. I could not believe that Frances Starr, as an actor uh, who plays Nancy, would ever be the kind of person who would kill someone period yeah there's no crime of passion in her i kind of liked that on the level of it's been 20 years right like she's like a completely different person which is maybe giving the movie too much credit but i really liked the idea of like the person she was 20 years ago is so far behind her that like you you don't even see it in her anymore uh yeah i mean i guess so I, I don't know. I think that, like, my problem with them is less the acting, I think, than the script. Well, though, I guess there's an argument to be made of, like, a really talented actor could have made that sort of turn work and, like, shown you the sort of instability and that could have sort of foreshadowed what they're going to do before you get to that scene. But, like, that's a real hard turn into suicide for, like, anybody to land. She seemed a little sad and a little, like, withdrawn, I guess would be. Not even withdrawn. She just seemed kind of like, I don't know. She just didn't have any any real emotion until she was in a state of complete panic. I got her desperation. I just thought that, like, she was going to do some... I thought there were going to be some desperate actions between calling up your local newspaper and killing yourself. Right. Yeah, I definitely didn't feel like there was any kind of desperation in her other than when she walked into the bathroom and committed suicide. But speaking of the scene where she calls the newspaper, that I thought was actually one of the better scenes in the movie. I don't think the sets in this movie are that spectacular or the costumes really, but there's really good editing in this film. Mm. And I think that like that scene is definitely like a masterwork of editing, like good choice of when to do split screen and why and when to like fully cut entirely to one person talking in one of those ways that like we've we've seen a couple of times now on screen test of time where it's like oh i bet everybody else doing this is kind of aping this movie i don't think we've ever seen the split screen telephone thing before and i like the fact that they did three so you'd have like her in the center and then you'd have the two different offices at the newspaper and then when someone hung up that place on the screen would go black but it wouldn't disappear and then you'd have them call again and it would come back up i thought it was really clever and i thought they did a good job that was probably the only artistic thing in the movie that i really noticed i have one other thing to talk about that maybe we will just cut this for i don't quite know what to do with this and i kind of just need you confirming that it's true the the new female like kind of reporter kind of secretary they hire they talk about and very directly about her boobs to a degree that i was like 1931 there are so many like really direct shots of her cleavage and then discussion of like oh they'll hire you all right that i was like we're really just doing this like, it comes up a lot. It comes up in literally her first scene, and then in pretty much every scene afterward. 
somebody like checks her out as she's like on her way in or on her way out of the scene. That was such a weird thing that they put in there because one, it was totally unsubtle. Usually they they go like, you know her, and then a guy like does the curve shape hand thing and then whistles. And that's like the dirtiest a movie has gotten with us before. And this one's like, she's got tits. And you're like, what? What is happening? One of the things that I thought was really abhorrently sexist about this movie was the fact that her name is Kitty Carmody. And that's Carmody, not comedy, which I kept thinking they were referring to her as comedy as like a really rude nickname. But they set her up completely in opposition to Miss Taylor, the secretary, Mm -hmm. to the point where Miss Taylor actually is participating in this objectification of her. Yeah. And it's like, oh, well, Miss Taylor's the good girl who's brunette and, like, doesn't try to be anything but a secretary, whereas Kitty is all boobs and wants to be a writer. And you're like, fuck that double standard. (sighs) That's the other reason why, like, the reveal that Miss Taylor was in love with the editor was so weird to me, is, like, my read on that from the first scene was, like, oh, the new model's in town. Like, Miss Taylor used to be this, and has now, like, aged all the way into her late 30s. (laughs) My god, what will she do? And then there was, like, no, I've always been this thing of that reveal that she was in love with him, where it was, like, well, then why were you so... Well, fuck you then, kind of. Yeah, right. Like, if you're just a prude, and so you have to be, like, an asshole to this woman who just joined because she has her boobs out? Like, who cares? Yeah, it was really sexist and shitty. Oh, we we have not talked about how Boris Karloff is in this movie, like, literally at all. That's true. We have not talked about how Boris Karloff is in this movie, probably because his character and that entire part of the story is fucking worthless and totally extraneous but i guess we should talk about what it is no he's the one that becomes the priest right yeah he pretends to be the reverend for their church which apparently they never go to here's the weirdest part of that is that like this is his brilliant plan but he doesn't know that the daughter is about to get married he just calls up as the reverend isopod and then it works And it's like, even the editor in the movie is like, why would you ever think that would work? Why did that work? What is going on? One of the things that he does is he asks for a photograph of Jenny, who is Nancy's daughter, the one who's getting married, for the church to be in the church records and then uses that photograph in the paper for the the story about how murderous Nancy Voorhees' daughter is getting married. And like, photographs were not easy to come by at that point. So you're just gonna be like, yeah, sure, take the picture of our daughter for the church records. That makes sense. That's the other thing that's wild to me about the Boris Karloff casting is like, I think from the script, this character is sort of meant to be kind of an idiot. There's a little bit of a, like, bumbling quality to them in all of their interactions with the editor. But then the movie plays Boris Karloff as creepy because it's Boris Karloff and he's creepy. Yeah. But that's at complete cross-purposes with the way the character works in the script, which is he keeps talking his way into people's lives and they keep inherently trusting him and telling him shit they don't need to. And it's fucking Frankenstein. Yeah, and he lurks. Yes. He totally lurks. There is no way that if that guy came into my home, I wouldn't be like, 
okay, I am terrified of you. And honestly, like, that would be a much more believable reason why they give him the photograph is like, please get out of my house, Frankenstein's monster. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Take whatever you want. <sighs> Man, we should rate this movie. You've taken the unprecedented step of rating this like before we even finished the plot outline. But I feel like I almost have like your classic five of being like all over the place on this movie. Because like every time I'm like, this movie's garbage too. I'm like, yeah, but there is the husband. There are the scenes of like ranting against tabloid journalism that are really pretty good. There's some nice patter in this movie. I am unable to get a bead, actually, on exactly how I feel about this film in a way that I kind of want to give it the five of like, well, I give up. Five. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, That's, I mean, that's fair. That's totally fair. I really do feel like it has moments, if not of greatness, at least of striving for it. It totally feels to me like the script was written to barrel forward to these monologues. Oh, yeah. And that in doing that, whoever the script writer was... Written by Lewis Weitzenkorn. And then two rewriters from the original play script, Byron Morgan and Robert Lord. It totally felt like the guy sat down and wrote some great monologues and then was like, well, I've got to build a play around this. And there were way too many characters. There were way too many side plots that didn't need to be there that felt like they were written, you know, they were comic relief. So there are all these comic relief bits that very much bordered on vaudeville, like the guy who's the contest editor who comes up with the idea for the taxi cab race. Oh yeah, everything Ziggy, which is the character's name. By the way, between this and The Wire, just petition to ban all Ziggies from fiction. (laughs) Just whenever there's a Ziggy, they're caught in these fucking meaningless go-nowhere side plots. Just end Ziggy's as a fictional construct. Yeah, well... The only thing that I did like about Ziggy is that, once again, Sewer Rat from 7th Heaven has returned. Oh my god, is that him? Yes. (laughs) Holy shit. I never recognize him. Every single time he's in something, I'm like, that- him? Is he funny or something? Like, I just never, ever- And he looks- Nothing like he looked in in the racket where he plays Scarzi. No. This guy absolutely disappears into every role that he plays, but I'm for some reason always happy to see him there. But yeah, this character sucked and was totally superfluous and pointless, had nothing to do with the main storyline whatsoever. It was just like, every now and then we need to throw him in so that there's a little bit of levity. And it's also like, it's treated as like, one of the reasons this paper is total garbage is it does a contest. Where like, yeah, but also doing a contest is way better than killing people. (laughs) So like, maybe leave Ziggy alone not the worst thing that the paper does so would we tell people to watch this movie i would tell people to just watch the scene where the daughter comes in with the gun and talks a lot of shit about tabloid newspapers because honestly that's the only scene the movie wants you to watch (laughs) and where philip tells off his mom right well okay yeah i guess that like I don't know. Philip telling off his mom is pretty satisfying, but you have to watch the completely bizarre suicide scenes for it to make any sense. I feel like you can just, like, skip straight to the scene where Jenny comes in with the gun and starts talking shit 
to the newspaper publisher. Just completely sans context, and it still works. But also, you're never going to do either of those things, so I don't know why I'm being specific about it in that way. My feelings on, like, should you watch this movie? Nah. There are better movies that have this same moral. Nothing that's good about it is good enough to seek it out. Network does win. So, like, Network is nominated. So, yeah, you have absolutely no need to watch this film. You can you can just go through your life doing something else. So next week, we are moving on to The Champ. Which, ironically, now that I think about it, now that we're done watching Low Rent Network, we can watch Low Rent Rocky. <laughs> A movie from the exact same year, also nominated for an Academy Award. That's true. So tune in next week when we watch The Champ starring Jackie Cooper. Until then. This was a movie. I have no hesitation about saying that about this. This was a movie. Bye, everybody. <laughs> Marvelous. Sure, it's a great story. Sure, give her the works. Plaster it all over the front page. Get an extra out if you want to. Say, paint it on the front of the building. Tattoo it on Hinchcliffe's chest. I don't care what you do with him, because I'm not working here anymore. No, Hinchcliffe's got to get himself a new head butcher. I've had ten years of filth and blood. I'm splashed with it, drenched with it. I've had all I can stand, plenty of it. Take him there, Skilling, to Hinchcliffe with my compliments, and tell him to shove it up his... (laughs) 